What do you think of when you think of fathers? I wonder whether these sort of things come into your mind. Perhaps Homer Simpson. Uh, Homer Simpson, the sort of stereotypical uh, sit-at-home dad. Or perhaps Peter Griffin, if you come across Family Guy. You know, the incompetent person who keeps falling over and hurting his knee. Or uh, perhaps you think of... There's a guy called Al Bundy. This was big when I was little. Two point, uh, no, married with children. Uh, he's sort of bullied by his wife and just goes along with everything. Perhaps you think of Frank Spencer. Do you remember him and Betty? Uh, trying to be a, a father to his, his little girl and, and always messing up. Or perhaps you think of the opposite extreme. Uh, this is uh, George Van Trapp. Captain George Van Trapp. Who has his children so regimented that, you know, he just has to blow a whistle and uh, up they line up in the sound of music. Or perhaps you think of something like Toy Story, uh, where the father isn't there at all, never mentioned, it's just uh, just the mum. Actually, our society is really confused about fatherhood, isn't it? Uh, are fatherhood and motherhood interchangeable? Uh, do we lose anything if a father or a child has two fathers or, or two mothers? What is the father there for? What is his role? Does he even have one? And this is something that's relevant to all of us, even if we're not fathers, Partly because everybody in this room, there's not many things you can say about every person in a room, is there? But every one of us has a father, whether he was around when we were growing up or not. Uh, Many of us in this room are fathers. Uh, Many of us in this room are married to fathers. Many in this room might one day be fathers or are fathers of fathers. And everybody in this room should be praying for fathers and mothers too. And it helps us to know how to pray if we know what fathers should be doing, if we know the struggles that they face, what their role is uh, in our society, in their families. So we're going to be looking at fatherhood this morning. And I want to say from the outset that the Bible does not give us a model of the sort of 1950s nuclear family. You know, it doesn't present us with 2.4 children or some sort of version of Little House on the Prairie. So I was trying to think of a sort of stereotypical sort of 1950s family. That's before the 1950s. But um, families in the Bible are actually really complicated, aren't they? Think about families in the Bible. You've got families with more than one mother. You've got families with a missing father. You've got extended families with all sorts of problems. Families with fathers that make Homer Simpson look like a parenting expert. You've got jealousies within families, sibling rivalries, fighting for their father's attention. Fallings out between fathers and sons that last for decades. So I'm not going to send us back to the 1950s this morning. And actually, as, as we grow as a church, more and more people are going to join us from all sorts of different varieties of families. And that's okay, because as the saying goes, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. Many of us are presented with situations that we have no control over, and everybody's situation will be different. So I want us to do two things this morning. I want us first to look at what fatherhood is in the Bible, and then secondly, I want us to have a walk through the Bible, looking at fatherhood. We're not going to be picking up on individual stories as examples, but we're going to be seeing how fatherhood works through the flow of Scripture. The technical name for that is a a biblical theology. Uh, For the first half, I'm going to be borrowing uh, copiously from this book, uh, Fatherhood by Tony Payne, much recommended. Uh, I read this before I was was married, uh, I read this. Um, because I thought, well, actually, I, I want to know what sort of a, a woman I need to marry to be a good father and her be a good mother. So even if you're not a father, uh, I'd really recommend that book. Very good on just manhood in general. Uh, so yeah, I'll be hopelessly uh, borrowing from that. But first of all then, what is fatherhood in the Bible? And I want to say this morning that fatherhood is a life giver who leads his family for their spiritual good. So first of all, the father is a life giver. In the Bible... 
the father is seen as the instigator of life. It obviously has the, the mother there as well. But in our society, we tend to think of a fatherhood being, uh, well, parenthood being the mother's thing. So often in our society, we speak about the, uh, a child who's in the mother's womb being the body of the mother. So you'll hear people saying, well, you know, it's my body. Uh, but actually in the Bible, uh, things are seen a, a little bit differently. So on the back of your uh, note sheet there, you should see that there's Job chapter 10, uh, 10 and 11. It's a little bit uh, graphic, but here we go. It said, did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? You knitted me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. The image that's being given is of of sperm, is of of semen being poured in and curdled uh, in the mother's womb. Now, obviously, this isn't written as a scientific textbook, but it does give us that idea that the man is giving life to the, the child. It's something that the man is giving. And it's not just this passage that, that gives us that impression. <clears throat> I've gone back to the uh, King James Version, I don't often, but it, <clears throat> it has it, uh, <clears throat> so excuse me, it has it really uh, clear in there. So Genesis 15 verse 4, and behold the word of the Lord came unto him saying, uh, this shall be thine heir, that he shall come forth from thine own bowels shall be thine heir. That's God promising to Abraham that his heir would come from his bowels, his, his belly if you like. So it's saying that it will be a produce of his of his stomach, if you like. It'll become from uh, from him. Interesting, it's the same word that's used of what a woman has. So Genesis twenty five twenty three, and the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, uh, and two and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. So just as the mother. Uh, has the bowels from which the child comes from. So it's a product of the man's bowels as well. And then I've had to go back even further to try and get a, a translation that showed you just the, the words there that are used. But in Micah 6 verse 7, uh, this is spoken to, to a man. This In the Wycliffe Bible, which is the first Bible in English, uh, this is what he wrote. He said, Can God truly be satisfied with even thousands of rams or with many thousands of fat goat books? Shall I give my first begotten son for my great trespass, yea, the fruit of my womb, for the sin of my soul? That's a man speaking saying he's given the fruit of his womb. Now most modern translations say body, because it's weird to talk about a man having a womb, isn't it? But it's the same word that's used in Genesis 25-23, where it says womb there for a woman. So again, it's this picture that the, the, the child is the fruit of the womb of the man, if you like. The fruit of his body, the fruit of his uh, loins, if you like. And there again in Psalm uh, 132, uh, 132 verse 11. The Lord swore truthfully to David, and did he not say in vain, I shall put the fruit of thy womb upon the throne. So God was saying to David, the fruit of your womb, the fruit of your body, the fruit of your loins will be there. It's, the child is spoken of as the fruit of the man, the product of the man, if you like. So it's not doing down the role of the woman, but it certainly helps us redress that balance, doesn't it? And then again in Hebrews 7, verses 9 and 10, we're back in the ESV now. Uh, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So you see there that Levi, even though it's his grandfather, is pictured of being in the loins of, uh, of his grandfather. It's a product of, of Abraham. So, God is, uh, Father is seen as the creator of the child, if you like. 
uh, the one from whom the child comes from. We see that again in Deuteronomy 32 verse 6 uh, with God. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is he not your father who created you, who made you and established you? It's linking those ideas together. So in the Bible, he is the life giver. He is the creator of the child. That is the, the role of the father. Not Like I say, not to do down the, the woman's role, but it's certainly not just a product of the woman. It's not part of the woman's body. The child is the fruit of the man, uh, the fruit of his womb, the fruit of his loins. So the man... Uh, a father is the life giver who leads his family. So what you create, you have authority for, uh, uh, and uh, sorry, authority over and responsibility for. So think about it, God makes the world. He has authority over it. He's responsible for it. If you wrote a book, you'd have authority over what it says, but you'd also be responsible for the content. If you make a sandwich, <laughs> that's sillier, isn't it? But you have authority over what goes in the sandwich. But you are then also responsible uh, for giving someone food poisoning if they get food poisoning from that sandwich. And it's the same with the family. The man makes his children. The man creates his family. So he is boss in the home. He has authority as creator of the family. Children, Old and New Testament, are told to obey their parents, aren't they? They're told to obey their fathers. And this means that the father especially is the one to be obeyed. He is the boss. He's responsible for his family. And that means that ultimately the book stops with him. There's no point blaming the wife like Adam did. If your family's a mess, then it's your responsibility, your responsibility to sort it out as a father. Because if you think about it, even the, the phrase for family, family, the word family is quite rare in the Bible. Actually, more often, as we saw in our reading, the phrase that's used for a family is the father's house. It's his house. So Genesis 50, 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt he and his father's house. Joseph lived there for 110 years. Now, I know they lived in tents those days, but it's not talking about sort of moving his father's house uh, into Egypt. It's talking there about his family, isn't it? It's talking there about people. Uh, it's really just another word for family. But we often think of family as the mother's domain, don't we? You know, the man works, the woman takes care of the children. But that's not the biblical model. The man provides for his children, yes. He's responsible for them. But the father is at the centre of the family. One commentator puts it like he's a, 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 it's like a wheel, a bicycle wheel, where he's the centre of the, the spoke. All the uh, power and authority come from him within that family. So the father shouldn't be sidelined in the care of the family, in the care of the children. Uh, I've got a wonderful quote here from uh, Martin Luther on childcare. I was going to read just a short bit, but it's so good I want to re- read the whole thing. You've got to bear in mind that Martin Luther, as he wrote this, He was the first minister in generations to have actually had children. In those days, if you wanted to be really holy, you'd become a nun or a monk or a priest, all of which were not allowed to have children. So he was really the first generation in in generations uh, to write about fatherhood, about being a family. And this is what he wrote. It's quite a long one, but uh, it says, Now observe that, that, sorry, observe that when that clever harlot, our natural reason, which the pagans followed in trying to be most clever, takes a look at married life. She turns up her nose and says, Alas, must I rock the baby, wash its nappies, make its bed, smell its stench, stay up nights with it, take care of it when it cries, heal its rashes and sores, and on top of that, take care of my wife, provide for her, labour at my trade, take care at this and take care of that, do this and do that, endure this and endure that, 
and whatever else of bitterness and drudgery married life involves. What should I, uh, should I make such a prisoner of myself? Oh, you poor wretched fellow, have you taken a wife? Woe, woe, woe upon you, such wretchedness and bitterness. It is better to remain free and lead a peaceful, carefree life. I will become a priest or a nun and compel my children to do likewise. That's what his natural reason is saying. What then does the Christian faith say to this? It opens its eyes, looks upon all these insignificant, distasteful and despised duties in the spirit and is aware that they are all adorned with divine approval as with the costliest gold and jewels. It says, O God, because I am certain that you have created me as a man and have from my body begotten this child, I also know for a certainty that it meets with your perfect pleasure. I confess to you that I am not worthy to rock the little babe or wash its nappies or be entrusted with the care of the child and its mother. How is it that I, without any merit, have come to this distinction of being certain that I am serving thy creature and thy most precious will? Oh, how gladly will I do so, though the duty should be more insignificant and despised. Neither frost nor heat nor drudgery nor labour will distress or dissuade me, for I am certain that it is so pleasing in your sight. Now tell me, when a father goes ahead and washes nappies or performs some other mean task for his child and someone ridicules him as an effeminate fool, that though that father is acting in the way just described in the Christian faith, my dear fellow, you tell me, which is really ridiculing the other? God, with his angels and creatures, is smiling, not because that father is washing nappies, but because he's doing so in the Christian faith. Those who sneer at him and see only the task and not the faith are ridiculing God with his creatures as the biggest fool on earth. Indeed, they are not only ridiculing themselves with all their cleverness, but are nothing but devil's fools. So that was Martin Luther's view on fatherhood, on, on looking after children. He's actually saying that it's, it's a blessed thing to do, it's a good thing to do. Uh, and actually the good smiles as he sees uh, parents, and I think grandparents as well, uh, changing their, their uh, children's nappies. This is something that's a privilege, it's something that God has given us. So we're to be involved in the family, we're to be involved, uh, not just in sort of providing the money, but actually involved in caring for the children. So he's a life giver who leads his family in all sorts of different ways. And he does that for their spiritual good. This is the purpose of fatherhood. I nearly had for us this morning the glory of God, but I wanted to make it a bit more specific because this is how we glorify God. Authority is never given in the Bible as a means in itself, an end in itself. It's never given as a way that we sort of big up ourselves. Actually, authority is given in the Bible so that we can serve other people. Authority is given in the Bible to work for the good of others, and it's the same with fatherhood. Authority is given not to sit barking orders at our wife and kids. Authority is given to choose what's right for the family, to have that authority to, to choose. Let me give you a silly example. Uh, the remote control. Uh, in my family, it used to be called the Twiddler. Uh, my granddad used to call it the Hoofa Doofa. I don't know what you call it in your house. Uh, but the remote control. Now, I want you to imagine a situation. Imagine in a family, one of the kids wants to watch Peppa Pig, because they're obsessed with it at the moment. Uh, your wife wants to watch Coco, uh, the gorilla who talks to people. not seen that one myself. And you want to watch the football, or, or maybe, if you were me, more question time or maybe Gardener's World, depending on what you're uh, really into. Well, who decides what you watch in your family? Who gets control of the remote control? Well, you do. You're the father, you're the authority. What do you pick? 
What do you choose? Will you serve yourself? Or will you serve others? Maybe the best option might be to take a bold decision to say, well, I'm going to switch the TV off for a little while and do something as a family. So that's a silly example, but do you see how you could choose to serve yourself with that authority, or you can choose to serve your family? Well, let me give you a more serious example. Something big like one of the most stressful things you can do, moving house. So many times our decisions are based on, you know, I'll go to a place with higher wages for more leisure and holidays. I'll go to the place with the the status, you know, the dream house, with the legendary games room that never actually ends up appearing, or the the man cave, I think they call it now. Oh yeah, this this room is brilliant, it's my man cave, but it never happens. Better questions to be asked would be, where does God want me and my family? Where can I serve uh, with my family best? Where will my family thrive spiritually? Those are the sorts of things we need to ask as we think about those big decisions. And as fathers, we have been given the authority to make those decisions. But again, will we serve ourselves or will we serve our families for their spiritual good? And it is for their spiritual good. The physical good is there. You know, we don't want to hurt our our families, our children. But physical comes second. Because sometimes actually making the right decision spiritually could be detrimental physically or dangerous. Making the right spiritual choice will often contradict the physical choices that we make. So, for example, if, if just take a really basic example. If we want our children to become Christians, or our grandchildren to become Christians, that will actually lead to persecution for them. That will actually lead to suffering. The Bible's really clear that that's what happens when you become a Christian. What should a father do in Pakistan who has children? Should you want them to become Christians? Well, actually, that could cost them their life in a country like that. Actually working for their spiritual good might be working against their physical good sometimes. Perhaps more on the level that we're at, it might be moving to a place where the schools aren't as good because it's needed for the gospel. It might mean staying put in your job because it's better for you and your family spiritually than moving up the career ladder and having less time for them. So all these things, actually, it's their spiritual good that we're working for and we have the authority as fathers to do that. So a father is a life giver who leads his family for their spiritual good, not for his own personal good. What we're going to do now is take a few minutes to walk through the Bible and see how that works out in the big story of Scripture to help us get a grasp on the whole message of the Bible. So we're going to have a walk through the Bible and we're going to start with creation. So think about those three things. The father is the life giver who leads his family for their spiritual good. That's what we see right back at the beginning, isn't it? God himself was a father to the world. He gives life to, to everything. That's how it all starts, isn't it? And God is clearly in charge. He sets the rules. And God does this for their spiritual good. He does it for his own glory, as we we were talking about before. But it's for their good that he makes them. And he makes them glorify him, because that is the best thing that they can be doing. So right back at the beginning, we even have this as father. We have God as father. And he makes men... Fathers. Reproduction is not a product of the fall. Uh, We don't believe that sex was the forbidden fruit that they weren't to take. God had always planned for them to have children. Fathers and mothers are even mentioned right back there in Genesis 2, uh, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Have you ever thought about that? There were no fathers and mothers at the point uh, where that is in Genesis. Actually, there's just a man and his wife. But right then, fatherhood is is in the the DNA of the world, if you like. So parenthood, especially fatherhood, is a reflection 
of that relationship that God has with us. And Father had even existed before that, didn't it, in the Trinity, uh, as this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he models the world on himself in that way. We get a picture of God the Father and the Son uh, by having fatherhood and sonship. But then, of course, comes the fall, and fatherhood is broken. Their rebellion, it really is a rejection of God's fatherhood. Think about what they're saying as they rebel against God. They're saying, we want to be boss. We want to be our own creators. We want to decide what's right and wrong. We don't want your authority over us. And they doubt that God is working for their spiritual good, don't they? They believe the devil's lies. Actually, God's holding back something from them that is not really working for their good. And they fall. And fatherhood itself is broken in the fall. So we see brothers, don't we, killing each other almost straight away afterwards with Cain and Abel. But if you want an example of a fatherhood going wrong really soon after that, think Noah. So this is uh, Genesis 9. This is the bit you don't find out in Sunday school about Noah, uh, when he gets drunk at the end, and uh, his sons, uh, one of his sons comes and finds him uh, naked and, and drunk, passed out in the tent. Uh, and his two other sons come and lay a cover over him. And this is what Noah says to his son, uh, Genesis 9, 24 and 25. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew that his young, what his youngest son had done, he said, Curse be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. So you think about that. What is Noah doing there? He's not being a blessing to his children. He's actually cursing his children. Uh, he's actually not, not bringing them spiritual good. He's actually cursing them for generations and generations. He's not a channel of blessing, but of cursing. So fatherhood is broken. Uh, he's not doing what he should be doing. And then we find Abraham and the patriarchs. Patriarchs, of course, means father rule, isn't it? We talk about them as the fathers. And what we hear, see here is fatherhood reinstalled, if you like. God picks up fatherhood. So Genesis 17, 4-6, this is what he says to, God says to Abraham. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall you be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham. For I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. See the blessing that God is giving to Abraham, and it's bound up with fatherhood. He's going to be the father of many nations. That's what Abraham means. And the blessing to the world is going to come through his fatherhood. That's why later on it's talked about as being the children of Abraham. He is their father. And it follows the fatherly line. The blessing goes down, father to son, father to son. So God is is using fatherhood. God is restoring it in in a sort of promised sense. That God is picking it up and making it into something. But the actual fatherhood itself, the actual parenting, continues to be broken. If you read the Old Testament, it is full of really rubbish fathers, uh, as you read it through. I mean, they had favourites, didn't they? They pitted their children uh, against each other. Uh, we saw some of the examples, didn't we, in, in the passage that we we read. Think about Joseph and his brothers and what Jacob does to them. Think about Isaac. All of them uh, are broken. But it means that it's a promise, isn't it? It's looking forward to something better. And that's what Abraham is doing. He's looking forward to this promise of restored fatherhood. And then we see in the kingdom, we see the principle exhorted, but the practice distorted, if you like. So the principle is held up again, but the practice is, is a real mess. So um, if you think about it, the kingdom comes about really because of bad parenting. 
This is what happens in 1 Samuel 8, uh, 4 and 5. Uh, the elders uh, of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel, he was the uh, judge at the time at Ramah, and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a, ju- a king to judge us like all the other nations. They're actually saying, Samuel, you've made a mess of, of bringing up your kids, so give us a king instead. We don't want your ki- kids to reign over us. Samuel comes across as being genuinely very good, doesn't he, in the Bible? Um, but he doesn't make it as a father. His, his children still uh, are very disobedient. And then, of course, 1 Samuel 2, 12, we were seeing it earlier. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. You see God taking away the, uh, the priesthood from uh, those boys and giving it to Samuel instead. It's just littered with examples of awful fathers all the way through. Uh, but yet again, God affirms fatherhood. So think of what he gives them in replacement to judges. He gives them kings. Well, the one thing about kings that we all know is that it passes down from one generation to another, doesn't it? It's father to son again, father to son. Um, so this is what God promised uh, David at 2 Samuel seven twelve to 14. When your days are fulfilled, you shall lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. So do you see there that God is, is promising David a line. But he's also promising to be a father uh, to that, that son. Promising to be a father to this great son that's promised. So the principle's lifted up. But the practice is still rubbish. And then at the end of the Old Testament, of course, the prophets. The prophets look forward to a coming one. And the coming one would be a son who's a father. Have a look at Isaiah uh, chapter 9, verse 6. We often read this at Christmas, don't we? For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, and Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, actually. The son is given, but he's going to be called Everlasting Father. Um, actually, we see that this one who's coming, it will be a father. Not the father, uh, because it will be coming in Jesus, won't it? But um, he has the qualities of a father, uh, as we'll see when we get there. So a child is born who will be a father. We also see in Isaiah 53, um, the dead man that will see his offspring. So Isaiah 53, 9 and 10. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, and his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Do you see that the one that would be coming is this life-giving figure, this authority figure, who has children somehow, who has offspring, who is a father. So this is what we're looking for as we come to the New Testament. But we are also promised a restoration of fatherhood itself. So Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And I will turn the heart of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So do you see there that God is promising a restoration of relationships. He's promising father and son to be turned back to one another when this great day comes. And that pushes us to the New Testament. So we see Jesus, don't we? Jesus is the, he's the son, but he's also a wonderful example of a father. 
Think about it. If we thought about our three things that our father does, he's a life giver, a giver of life. Jesus is the life, isn't he? Uh, Jesus said in John 6, for the bread, uh, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Or we all know, don't we, that Jesus came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus is the life giver, uh, just like a father. He's also the one who leads his family, isn't he? Jesus is the head of the church. He has authority over us. So he's our brother, but he also acts in, in a way as a father over us. Uh, he, he acts as a father to his disciples. You think about those wonderful pictures of uh, the disciples sort of leaning into uh, his bosom, it says, isn't it, in, in the Bible, sort of leaning on his chest. And people have tried to make that into all sorts of things, but if you think about it, it's a wonderful picture of a father and his child, isn't it? He has authority over his children. And he uses that authority for their spiritual good. Can we say that any more about anyone else than Christ, that, than that he worked for our spiritual good? He died for our spiritual good. He died to wash us clean. He died on the cross, taking the punishment for our sin, for our spiritual good. And he had authority to do that. He was uh, acting like a father. And Jesus is even spoken of uh, like a parent uh, in the New Testament. So Matthew 23, uh, 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Now I know that's Jesus talking like a mother, more of that on Mother's Day. Um, But he's spoken of as a parent. So Christ is our model for fatherhood. Even though he never had any physical children, he cared for his disciples, he cares for us. We see the way he interacts with children in the gospel, loving authority. So he's a model of a son, yes, the son to his father. But he's also a model of the father to the church as well. Which brings us nicely on to the church. So our relationship with God in the church is mended through Christ. He was the true son of the father. He lived out a human life as a son of his father like no other person had ever done. And we too are sons of the father in him. We can know what true fatherhood is now because we are adopted into God's family when we put our trust in Christ. So it means even if we have fathers who who didn't treat us well, our fallen fathers, it still means that we can know a true fatherhood in God. And if you're here this morning and you're not 